Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7, Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Hello, Sharon. Well, good morning, Jeremy. How are you? I'm doing well, doing well. Good to see you virtually. You know, I hate we can't be in the studio again together, but I'll tell you what, one thing COVID has done is uh, we've learned to use technology, hadn't we? Uh, even you've learned how to use technology. Now, that's well, kind of a joke because you are the guy who does all the recordings. You've learned so much since we've been doing this. Tell you what, I've, I've had to, you know, it was a trial by fire, I think, on this, so... Well, you've done a great job, even if I have to say so myself. <laughs> <laughs> I, I will I will digress for just a minute. You remember the first Facebook Live video we did? Oh, my God, and we did and it sideways. We did it sideways <laughs> and didn't know what we were doing. And, uh, you know, we're like, hey, is this working? You know, I bet people thought, what, what idiots they are. Gosh, who can't use Facebook Live? <laughs> well, we did get a little, little bit better at that. We did. We did. And we also want to say hello to our listeners, and we want to welcome them to the show this morning. Without you, we couldn't be here, so we really appreciate that. And Sharon, I'm so excited about our guest this morning. I know you are. You know, in, in doing a little bit of research on our guest this morning, who we'll introduce in just a minute, you know, I was, uh, I was very impressed and awed at all he'd accomplished and continues to accomplish. And I am just excited to have this podcast this morning. Well, you should be. So since you are so excited, I'll let you introduce our guest. Okay. Jeremy. Well, because I've known him for a long time. <laughs> well, this morning, we have the pleasure of having Mr. Ernest Grant on with us. Welcome, Ernest. Thank you for having me, Jeremy and Sharon. Delighted to be here. Absolutely. And for our listeners who, who don't know you, you know, we're taking a little different path this morning. You know, we're typically dealing with issues around 
CRNAs in general. And Ernest, you are president of the American Nurses Association. So, you know, one of the things, and I'll let Sharon expound upon this, that we've decided to do on the podcast is to interject more generalized nursing so that maybe in the long run, each sector of nursing can talk to each other and and help each other out in their endeavors along the way. So Sharon, you want to talk about that for just a moment? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Actually, like you said, we've been talking about this for quite some time. And, you know, whenever I went back to school to get my DMP at Yale, one of the beauties of my program was that it wasn't just CRNAs. It was all kinds of nurses from all over the country. And unfortunately, in nursing, sometimes we find that mainstream nursing, I don't know if I should say it like that or not, doesn't understand advanced practice nursing, doesn't understand what they do. And the reverse is true also. CRNAs don't understand everything MPs can do. MPs don't understand what CRNAs can do. So that got us to talking that maybe within our podcast, we need to integrate all of the different aspects of nursing so we can learn from each other because, you know, to move this ball down the field, as far as nursing is concerned, it's going to take all of us together and it's going to take unity and it's going to take understanding. How can we expect the public to understand what nursing does if we don't understand what each part of nursing does? So we decided to get Ernest on here as our inaugural guest in this endeavor going forward. So thank you, Ernest, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely delighted to be here. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Ernest? Let's see, where, where can I begin? It's, it's actually, it's interesting that um, your podcast mostly goes to nurse anesthetists because uh, when I was in high school, my goal was to become a anesthesiologist. Uh, if you've read any of the bios that I have given, I've always have stated that my dream job was to be an anesthesiologist and drive a 1968 lime green cougar with a red interior. Don't ask me why. <laughs> a cougar. That's what yes. my husband drove when I yeah, met him. Yeah. That is it wasn't lime car. green. <laughs> <laughs> that is a great car. And I, I still have, uh, I'm saving up enough money to try to find one and uh, restore it. But uh, but I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina and was what I'm the last of seven children, very poor family. The community I grew up in, it was called Swananoa, was a very poor community itself. Everybody didn't matter what your skin color was. Everybody was pretty much almost in the same economic strata. You grew a garden, you shared what you had with people. And I remember my mother, you know, preserving, you know, fruits and vegetables or putting them in the freezer and things of that sort. So even though I had the grades to perhaps go to college and uh, on to medical school, there was no money. And uh, back then, scholarships were not as abundant as they are now. And uh, so the high school guidance counselor suggested that I perhaps go to nursing school. And he said, you could always become a nurse anesthetist. And then if you still wanted to go to med school, you could work your way through med school as a uh, nurse anesthetist. And I said, yeah, that sounds pretty good. You know, hadn't even thought about nursing. And he says, well, you may or may not like nursing. So why don't you take this one-year course at, at that time? And I'm really dating myself, Asheville Buckham Technical Institute, not co not community college, but institute. <laughs> uh, and uh, so uh, we, we did that. 
And about six months into that program, I totally forgot all about medical school. I realized that nursing was my calling. And, you know, from there on, you know, here it is. And every time I have gone back for another degree, you know, be it my baccalaureate, my master's or my doctorate, it was because I wanted to be able to do more for the people that I cared for in some way or another. And I still strive for that today, even in my position as president of the American Nurses Association. So that's the very brief miniaturized version of, uh, of how I got to where I am right now. Well, in earnest, now, I'm sorry, Jeremy, you worked at the burn unit at Chapel yes. Hill forever, didn't yes. you? That's how I met you. <laughs> yes, that's how we met. Because you were running a bill in the General mm-hmm. Assembly about yes. how hot you could make the water heaters yes. because you had taken care of so many babies that had been scalded, right? Absolutely. Yes, I started working at the burn center in uh, 1982. Worked there for 36 and a half years. There too, I really felt, you know, that was truly my calling was to, I I never thought of myself as an advocate or, you know, as a preventionist, you know, but when you start seeing little babies, you know, is, you know, even I I think the youngest kid I, I took care of was a week old you know, being injured, and the oldest person was 104. And you began to realize that these things are preventable. You know, there's things that we can do to prevent this from happening. And so as I grew the the outreach and prevention program at the Burn Center, and actually, I'm very proud to say that it actually has the world-renowned recognition because we took what we learned and shared that with underserved countries to also reduce fire and burn injuries in in their areas. So I'm very uh, proud of the work that I, I did there. And that also helped to groom me for the position of becoming president of the North Carolina Nurses Association, as well as eventually onto the American Nurses Association board and subsequently uh, president as well. So, uh, yeah. Well, and just an illustrious career thus far, Ernest, and you're the 36th president of the American Nurses Association, mm-hmm. the the first male president of yes. the American Nurses Association. Yeah. Um, it only took 122 years. Yeah, I was going to say it took a few years, but, you know, we, we finally made it there. All right. Um, now, let's just say, guys, there's still not been a female president of the United Sharon, States. Sharon, I so keep telling you, in our, in our lifetime, there will be. Don't worry. We got yes, you covered. Yes, it's around the corner. It is around, around the corner. corner. And then yes. also, Ernest, I just wanted to highlight because I, you know, I felt what an amazing honor this was as well. In 2002, President George Bush presented you with Nurse of the Year Award for working with burn victims at the World Trade Center site. Mm -hmm. So just uh, amazing, amazing career thus far. And also, you know, as I mentioned to you earlier, we're real happy you're from North Carolina and representing us here as well. So, Well, thank you. Thank you. And that presentation from uh, President Bush is uh, one of the highlights of my career. I um, have it in a special place in my home office one of my best friends is a uh, interior design person. And uh, when I moved into uh, my home, uh, his gift to me was to to design my office. So I was going to say one. Now it's like one and a half walls <laughs> in my home <laughs> office are all these awards <laughs> and things that I've gotten. But that's the one that sets right in the center. So I'm very, very, uh, very happy to uh, have that award. 
Yeah. Well, you know, today we're going to be talking about nursing and politics, and I, I know politics is uh, deep in Sharon's heart as well, so mm-hmm. I'm sure you two will, will have a wonderful conversation mm-hmm. today. But, you know, the first question that pops in my mind uh, about this is, why do you think this is so important right now? This is so important right now because, well, when you look at what's happened in the past, you know, 14, 16 months with the pandemic and also just healthcare in general, you know, what, but the pandemic really put a spotlight on not only the work that we as nurses do and how hard we work, you know, our educational preparation and things of that sort. I I think if you were to ask a neighbor of a nurse, you know, what, what does your neighbor do? What does your neighbor as a nurse do? They would probably say, well, I don't know, but I know they work at that hospital down the street or right. whatever. They, they really have no idea that nurses are everywhere. We're not only in the acute care setting. We're in long-term care. We're in research. We're in education. We own our own businesses. We, you know, we're in the airline business. I know nurses who actually work for NASA, you know, but you don't think of nurses as being in those positions. Uh, the only time a nurse comes to mind for a lot of people is either the inaccurate portrayal that we see on TV shows, which really just, you know, gets under my skin, or when there is an illness in the family and they, you know, rely on a nurse at that point, you know, they realize or they remember, you know, that that nurse was with them, you know, at that critical moment in their life, which is, which is great because I, I, I want that, but I also want people to to understand that we are more than that. We are your neighbors. We're in the community. So what happens in the world of politics not only affects us as a profession, but it affects us as a member of the community. For nurses, I want them to realize that as well and that they need to, you know, we're great at advocating on behalf of our patients in our workplace setting, but we don't see ourselves as being politically active or the need to be politically active. But Nurses need to realize that decisions that are made at the local, state, or national level will affect their ability to practice. And these decisions are being made by people who may not have any understanding or comprehension of that trickle-down effect or what it means or how that's going to interfere with our ability to practice. They may mean good, but because someone has advised a politician that this is uh, this is not a good thing or let's put limits here or let's do this or let's do that you know the trickle down effect is that somehow or other it's going to interfere with our ability to have full practice authority and i'm not just talking about advanced practice nurses either even nurses at the bedside have limitations on their educational preparations in some instances which could proved to be detrimental, I I guess you could say, uh, in regards to patient care. So this is why it's important that nurses themselves become astute and begin to advocate. You know, there's some ways that I suggest that they do this is just by simply volunteering to serve as a healthcare expert for someone who is running for political office, because their legislative aid Sometimes they're getting their information from obviously a lobbyist or someone who has a particular interest, but they don't really see the consequences of that action. Or even going to a town hall that someone may have and raise those questions, you know, at least get them to think about it. We may not necessarily be successful, but at least if you're able to voice you know, your opinion or your concern, it allows your neighbors to also see that this person 
speaking as a nurse, but also as a member of my community. They're looking out for us and they're pointing out things that I, as a member of that community, perhaps hadn't thought about. So that, uh, I guess, I, I apologize for the very long answer, but, you know, we're, we're talking in my, my groove here. <laughs> and so I can, I, I can sort of go on and on and on. But, uh, yeah. but it is very important, vitally important that nurses not only advocate in their workplace setting, but also advocate, you know, for their right to be able to practice, to have full practice authority. And, you know, also from the perspective of being a member of the community. Well, Ernest, I've got a deal for you. You know, we're going to be having our first campaign school for nurses and midwives coming up. And I think we should, after you finish being ANA president, you need Mm -hmm. to run for public office. (laughs) Well, believe it or not, that has been been strongly suggested. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. Well, you know, (laughs) you, you you are talking my language, too, because... You know, you're exactly right. Nurses have always been implementers of policy, but we don't see ourselves as being the drivers of that policy. And, you know, I've always said we need to be the ones pushing the button, yes or no, Mm -hmm. um, whenever policy is being made. So you're exactly right. And why don't you talk a little bit about how nursing is the most trusted profession? I was Um, was just going to to say that, you know, for, well, hopefully by the end of this year, to be 20 years in a row, nurses have been selected by the public at the annual Gallup's Honesty and Ethics Poll as the most trusted profession. Now, you can't ask for a stronger run than that. And this is uh, way above, you know, uh, doctors, lawyers. um, You know, I, I think the only time we were not rated as the most trusted was as a result of 9-11. And it went to firefighters and rightfully so. But I always say that I'm still counted there because given my uh, my background as a volunteer firefighter, I still, you know, once a firefighter, always a firefighter, once a nurse, always a nurse. But, you know, but to realize that you have the trust of the public, that too should also buoy nurses to, you know, to want to be able to do more and to advocate on the behalf of the public. One of the things we you're hearing the, the big buzzwords now, social determinants of health and et cetera, all those things that are in there, they concern health, they concern the community. And again, I go back to nurses as being part of that community. What happens in that community? If you have poor drinking water, if you have poor air, not enough food and et cetera, that's still going to affect you and your family as a, you know being a member of that community. So it's better to prevent that from happening so that you know, when that person does come to you for health concerns, it's a lot less than at the acute phase when, you know, perhaps uh, intervention may be a little too late. There are things that we can do prior to that, that will help to make a um, much safer and better environment. So I think things like that are some examples of how nurses have earned that trust of the, the public. And to me, uh, I meant to have mentioned earlier, it doesn't matter if you're a Democrat, a Republican, or an independent, you know, we have as our, our duty, I guess you could say, as a, as a nurse to advocate on behalf of what is right. And, you know, uh, well, let me just put it this way. I like to say that without nurses, there is no health. 
And so we own health. We need to continue to own health and we need to address it at every aspect, not just when it happens or when uh, we see it in the acute care setting or in the clinic setting, but health is all around us to be that clean air, clean water, you know, roof over our heads, you know, things of that sort. You know, those are still, you know, things that affects health as well. Hey, Ernest, I was just really surprised that politicians weren't in that most trusted profession. I mean, that, that just really surprises me. <laughs> yeah, as, you, as you, well. you would think that yeah. they'd be right there. <laughs> yeah, right there beside you. I mean, so, but, but you're, you know, I love that line without nurses, there is no health or health care because that is so true. I mean, how many nurses are there in the United States? Right now, there are, um, depending on who you read, but our last official count, there's 4.3 million registered nurses in the United States. And this is not counting the licensed practical nurses, but the registered nurse. And of course, ANA represents, you know, those, uh, you know, those nurses, whether they're members of the association or not. But we advocate on their behalf, on behalf of the profession, you know, by lobbying up on Capitol Hill and at the various state legislatures with our state associations and then our organizational affiliates as well, such as AA, I'm going to get it wrong, AANA, American as one of our organizational affiliates as well, you know, because we realize that there's strength in numbers yeah. and there are things that we can do together to achieve change than trying to, you know, battle, you know, things on, on many different uh, battle fronts. We can combine our, our resources. And, you know, as Sharon pointed out earlier, sometimes as nurses, we get into our different silos and we don't care about what's going on other places as long as it doesn't affect me. But eventually it is going to affect you. So, you know, by working together and combining our resources, we can achieve so much than, you know, trying to work in different silos and still having to put out or essentially playing whack-a-mole, if you will. Yeah. Well, I want to come back to just a minute about the number of nurses, because I know there's, there is a nursing shortage and it's going to get worse. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk mm-hmm. about, you know, of course, I'm the finance guy, the money guy. So I want to talk a little <laughs> bit about the retirement of nurses. Mm-hmm. But, but first, I mean, you've got this, the most trusted profession in the United mm-hmm. States for 20 years, let's say. Mm-hmm. We had this COVID event last year. It's continuing on. It looks mm-hmm. like, you know, the Delta variant's going to pick up. I think, what what is there, 160 million, 150 million people mm-hmm. have been vaccinated, which leaves almost mm-hmm. 200 million that haven't. Mm-hmm. How is ANA and nurses in general, how can they support this campaign to get others vaccinated? Well, that that is a great question, Jeremy. And I, I think, first of all, it starts with education and it starts with educating nurses, you know, by far, because when the vaccines first came out, you know, if you were to ask a nurse about, well, let me back up for just a second. Prior to the vaccines coming out, probably about six months before the vaccines came out, ANA did a survey of nurses, you know, and asked if there were a vaccine, you know, proven to, you know, to be effective, would you take it? And it was right down the middle, a third, a third, and a third. A third said wow. yes, a third said no, and a third said, you know, I'm sort of on the fence. I'd have to wait and see. So when the vaccines came out and we got the numbers of how effective they were, you know, the Moderna, uh, what, 94, and I want to say J&J, and it's not. It's Pfizer. slipping my mind. Pfizer, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pfizer at 95, and then J&J, you know, subsequently coming along as well. 
but people were hearing about mRNA. What is that? Right. You know, you know, and even though nurses, we take science courses, we're, you know, we're right there with, you know, people who are going to go into pharmacy and everything else. You know, you take those, those foundational courses. And even though, um, you know, vaccines and infection uh, control and et cetera is taught in nursing programs, they're not taught extensively. So right. nurses were not aware. A lot of them were not aware of, you know, what is an mRNA vaccine or how they work. Uh, they thought it was something new when in actuality, this form of uh, developing vaccines had been around for about 15 or 20 years. So that's why I say it's important that we educate nurses to understand how they work because of the fact we are the most trusted profession. When your neighbor knocks on your door and says, hey, should I take that vaccine? You know, they're going to take what you say as the absolute gospel. So nurses need to realize that words have, uh, have meaning and have power. Right. So if that nurse says, well, I wouldn't take it. Well, that neighbor obviously is going to tell all their friends. They're going to put it out on social media and things like that. Well, I talked to so and so and she's a nurse and or he's a nurse and I really trust what they said. And they said, no, I wouldn't take the, you know, the, the vaccine. So you can see how this domino effect begins to happen. And then you add in the anti-vaxxers that makes it even more of a concern. So it's important that nurses arm themselves with the correct information so that they can provide people with that so that they can make up their mind as to, you know, in other words, move from vaccine hesitancy to vaccine competency so that the person does feel comfortable enough to take the vaccines. Now, I was fortunate enough in that I actually uh, still am participating in the clinical trial of one of the vaccines. And I did it for a couple of reasons. One, because of being an African-American male, I knew that Blacks and people of color are not that well represented in clinical trials, particularly of you know vaccines like this. As the leader of ANA, I wanted to have some solidarity for nurses who are on the front line to let them know that, you know, hey, you're, you know, your president is willing to do his part as well to relax any fear or intrepidation or whatever that you may have as a result of the vaccine. So, you know, we'll do that that way. And of course, my age group as well. I won't say what decade that I'm in, but <laughs> but again, they needed individuals for that. So that's, uh, and I'm sorry for the very long rounded answer, but it's education. And we need to get the public when they are believing the doubters or et cetera, we need to be able to point them into directions to qualified information, you know, that uh, the CDC puts out or what, you know, the American Nurses Association, what we have on our website or what Johns Hopkins has on their website, you know, we need to be able to point them to information that can countermand what they have read on social media. And, you know, the government is trying to be extremely transparent. When you hear about like the blood clots that was happening with J&J and then subsequently now the potential for Guillain-Barre syndrome, that happens with other vaccines as well, but we right. don't hear about that, right. you know, and because of the fact that the other vaccines have taken years to be produced and to be effective and for it to be incorporated into the public. And then now you get this one that's just fresh off the, the bench. Uh, there's a, a lot of doubt, but people need to understand that this is the 21st century. We do designer medicine. We have, uh, you know, we can get results much faster than we did, you know, 40, 50, 60 years ago. And we have to trust the science. And so that's, uh, uh, again, a 
apologize for the very, very long answer, but that's the main thing is educating nurses so that they can subsequently educate the public into moving from vaccine hesitancy to vaccine competency so that they can you know, make the appropriate decision and, you know, remove all doubts and fears. So ANA, we've been doing a lot of um, work with the uh, National Ad Council, with uh, several other uh, federal and governmental organizations as well to uh, help encourage that. I've appeared on a number of podcasts specifically aimed at the BIPOP community, because again, we know that there's an extreme distrust of uh, healthcare in those communities to begin with. But I'm very proud and happy to, you know, to go and answer any questions or whatever that anyone may have. And hopefully, even if it just gets one person to change their mind and that they're willing to take the vaccines, to me, it's worth that time to do that. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Speaking of the education that you guys have been doing, I have signed up for a newsletter that the ANA puts out. I think it's weekly. It could be more frequently than that, but it's a compilation of a lot of different studies, et cetera. It's very, very well done. So anybody, even if you're not a member of the ANA, you can go to the site and sign up for that newsletter. And I would highly recommend it. It's very, very well done. Yeah. uh, Can I give out the, uh, if they just go to nursingworld.org, that's all one word, nursingworld.org. And from there, you know, the sky's the limit. You can look on the, uh, that's just the uh, the basic uh, platform for ANA, but but everything concerning COVID, concerning, you know, the latest nursing issues, you know, things of the sort, it's all there. So, and that uh, newsletter that you were talking about, they can find that under, we do have a special COVID page that is there that they can land there and get all the information from the first time, uh, well, from January of 2020 is when that, uh, that page first went up and it is updated every day. Very well done. Very well done. But it's odd that it's nursing world, you know, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. if people, I'm sure y'all have done the Google stuff. And so mm-hmm. if they do American Nurses Association, yes. mm-hmm. you'll automatically land there. Yes. Well, AMA was taken up by, let's see, what is it, the, uh, I forgot what it was. So we're, we're going to use ANA.org, but then some other, you know, there's a lot of different oh, organizations, yes. not even, not even associated with nursing. Like the ABA could be the American Burn Association, the American Bar Association, the American right. Basketball Association. <laughs> <laughs> Those are things that we ran into. So, uh, so Nursing World seemed to be very comprehensive as well. And yeah. uh, so that's why we went with that one. Very good. Very good. Now, I want to talk about something else that you mentioned earlier. You were talking about health policy and nurses and You know, you also said that once a nurse, you're always a nurse. And what I really liked about what you said is 
I think that it colors everything that you always see. Mm -hmm. And there is health in all policies. And that's why we have encouraged nurses to get involved politically, run for office. You know, you can be an advocate for sure, but we want nurses making the policies themselves. So do you want to expand on that just a little bit? Certainly. I, I, I think it's important that, you know, because of the experiences that nurses have, you know, we see people from all walks of life, you know, from very rich to uh, very poor, and we treat them the way we would want to be treated. We treat them as a, as a human being with respect. And we also, as I mentioned, we advocate for them in the acute care setting. So it's just part of our naturalness as being a nurse that, um, when we look at a particular piece of legislation, one of the first questions that you should ask yourself is, is this fair? You know, is this helpful for everyone or are a few people being left out? And if so, who are those people who are being left out and how does it affect them, the fact that they are left out? You know, we use essentially the nursing process, if you will, uh, you know, to if we applied that to pieces of legislation and et cetera, that will help us to determine that, yes, this is a good piece of legislation or no, it's not, and here's why. And maybe it needs to be tweaked, you know, to be inclusive of, of this or take something out or, or whatever. But it's, it's so, it's just second nature for us. Sharon, I'm, I'm sure you probably can, you know, walk into any room. If you're like me, I can walk into any room, do just a quick assessment of that room. You know, it's, it's just second nature. And I'm sure those who are listening to this uh, to this podcast will be able to, to recognize the same thing. Even though, yes, you may be familiar with, you know, just doing that quick assessment of the operating room. But before you became a nurse anesthetist, you know, you were a staff nurse somewhere on, on the floor and you could tell just by walking in the room before you even said two words to your patient, something's not quite right. You know, what's going on and what do I need to adjust? And it's the same instinct that I would encourage nurses as they consider either a career in politics or at least becoming an advocate you know, in their community that they apply the nursing process that same way. You know, when you walk into a room or you or you look at a potential piece of legislation or proposed uh, amendment or something like that, looking across the board, is it fair? You know, what's right or what's wrong about it? And, and how is that going to affect the community that I serve? And what can I do to, you know, to correct that? Sharon, I, you know, I, I think as I listen to this, it just makes me think more and more about the political aspects of nursing. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking we have this over 4 million person group. There's got to be some political clout there for sure. You know, why have nurses not been as politically active over the years? Is it lack of funding? Is it the picture that has been painted of, of the nurse that, you know, they're in the the hospital room and the doctor's in charge and the nurse just does what the doctor says. You know, there's got to be a culmination of reasoning behind that. Ernest, you want to tackle that or share it? Either one of you. <laughs> Boy, that's a, that's a biggie. I think that's like the $10,000 question, yeah. isn't it, Ernest? Well, like the $64 million question. <laughs> yeah. but, that's um, true. That's true. Uh, I'll take a stab at it and Sharon, maybe you can, uh, you can add on, but Yes, uh, Jeremy, all the, the things that you outlined before are correct. One is um, up until last year, nurses were not really woke, if you will. Um, oh, I like that. They, they I like that. <laughs> and moving forward, that you know, that they are. And it's 
you know, I guess if there's something good, if you will, that's going to come out of the pandemic, this may be one of those, you know, is that nurses are finding their voices and are realizing that, hey, we need to come together. If you look at the, you know, the recently um, introduced Future of Nursing report, you know, 2020-2030, you know, it talks about that as well. But prior to that, yes, nurses were, even though we're the largest member of the healthcare team, we're the ones who are most silent. We're the ones who, because we have a long history of working short staff, and because, you know, when someone would call up and say, well, we can't send you any more help, and we just suck it up and say, okay, well, I'll, I'll do it, you know, we'll, we'll, you know, let somebody else, uh, you know, take on an additional two or three patients or whatever, you know, now we're beginning to say, no, this is not safe, you know, and we have evidence to back it up that it's not safe. And, you know, so we're beginning to speak up. And uh, and I, I think one of the other things we need to do is to uh, those decisions that are being made about staffing or hiring or whatever. Sometimes, yes, the chief nursing officer will be advocating on our behalf, but it may be out of his or her hands. It may be that chief financial officer who the bottom line is looking at, okay, a profit. And because we have a long history of, of saying, yes, we'll continue to work short staff. You know, they're going to say, well, you've done this for six months now. Do you really need that, that FTE? Let's pull it, you know, because that's, you know, that's a huge savings for the, you know, the institution. And instead of, uh, you know, that person really understanding, um, you know, what it is that we as nurses do. And this is why I say that, um, you know, there's a, a, a famous saying that uh, Joanne Stevens and Gail Adcock always uh, likes to say, and I, I, I borrow that by saying, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. So this is why nurses need to be at the table making those decisions and maybe educating that chief financial officer that, sure, we may be working short staff and we're doing that. But if we continue to do this, it's going to cost you in the long run because eventually that nurse or those nurses are going to burn out. And so they're going to start calling in sick and uh, you're not going to have people to replace them either. Or they're not, you know, studies have shown that if they don't get enough rest between those 12 hour shifts, that there's increased possibility of medication errors and uh, or the potential of workplace violence and, you know, et cetera, happening. So do you really want that to happen as opposed to, you know, let's fix this situation by, you know, recruiting and hiring more nurses so that, you know, the uh, work can be distributed equally. So to come around to your, your question again, I, again, I apologize for these very long answers, but maybe I'm pre- uh, prepping myself for a career in politics. <laughs> <laughs> Instead of just answering questions directly, you sort of go, you know, go around things. You're going to win, Aaron Ernest. You're going to win. But I, I think it's important to, to lay the, the foundation as well. So, so yes, nurses are beginning to wake up and to find the value that they bring to the table. And as we advocate to get more nurses at the table, uh, and not just um, nurses who are, are leaders, but I, I think it's important, too, that we groom those nurses at the bedside, you know, for, you know, careers in leadership, either, you know, within their institution or even outside. It's important that we, we mentor those individuals, give them the tools that they need to be effective leaders so that even in the acute care setting, things run much more smoothly. Or if you're with an organization like I am with ANA and et cetera, we need to groom our next set of leaders 
so that we don't start from scratch every time there's a, you know, a newly elected individual who comes to, right. you know, to that position. There's continuity and, you know, we can make gains instead of starting all, all over again. So they need to understand, you know, the political process. They need to understand, you know, health policy and how to collaborate, how to give a little, how to take a little, but also how to have your voice heard and to embrace technology and you know, all the things that are out there that will help to make us a much more effective leader, a much more effective profession, you know, utilize all those tools. And for some nurses who say, well, politics isn't for me, that's fine, but you can help those people who are wanting to, you know, to become leaders, um, you know, by, you know, listening to them or offering them comments or, you know, things of, of that sort. There's things that every last one of us as nurses can do, but just sitting around and resting on our laurels or complaining is not going to get the job done. You know, we need to each do our part in order to be, uh, for the profession to be successful. Um, you know, Ernest, so, I was gonna, I was gonna say while you were talking, you know, I'm the, I'm the numbers guy, so I love numbers. Okay, and this is the man who multiplies <laughs> license plate numbers as he's driving down the road. I'm just you are, saying, you, you are not right, <laughs> and I love <laughs> it. So I, many I, I'm so addicted to it; it's crazy. But no, so all right, so we've got 4.3, and, and I'm just looking at it from a political perspective. If I'm a politician, you know, mm-hmm. there, there are probably two things that I'm paying attention to. One is how many people are going to vote for me and how much money they're going to give. Mm-hmm. And so if we've got 4.3 million nurses, I, I looked mm-hmm. up, there are, you know, let's just call it 1.1 million physicians in the mm-hmm. United States. So that means- and, and let me tell you, in those numbers, they will put retired physicians, physicians. because okay. once a physician, always, always a physician. A physician. Right. And so that's not how many are actually actively working. It's at 870,000 actively. So, mm-hmm. all right. So let's just say nurses outnumber four to one. So mm-hmm. you have the numbers. Mm-hmm. Um now, we don't so, have the money. So, all right, and that's that's what I'm just going to get to because it says, according to this, the average physician in the United States makes about two hundred and ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars. That's the average. The average nurse in the United States makes eighty thousand. All right, mm-hmm. now just me being the math guy, Ernest, mm-hmm. I say, all right, nurses outnumber four to one. Yes, physicians make more. But they're mm-hmm. not making an average of four to one more. So that would be 320000 So if I look at that on a dollar-for-dollar dollar basis, nurses make more in this country than physicians do if you look at averages. So back to the point, if I'm a politician and I know that I've got a 4.3 million person constituency out there compared to a 1.1 million mm-hmm. and that constituency actually has more buying power than this other constituency, then what's going on here? You know, and that's just me looking what's, at it from a well, pure number what, standpoint. What's going on? <laughs> I'm sorry, Sharon. I see that no. you want to speak as well. No. But So what's going on? What you fail to factor into that is that nurse who's making about 80000 a year, he or she also has probably student loans they have to pay pay for. Right. They uh, may be married with kids and et cetera. Um, in other words, they're, they do not have enough discretionary income there to contribute to a campaign. Or even if they did, it's maybe $25 or $50 or so, you know, and, and that's it. Yeah. Whereas the physician 
is going to contribute probably a thousand dollars to a politician. And so the politician is going to look, oh, well, if I can get a thousand dollars from Dr. John over here, but I can get, you know, $10 or $20 from, you know, from nurse John over here. When Dr. John calls me to say, hey, there's a bill pending in the legislature Mm -hmm. that I want you to, you know, sort of take a look at or whatever, you know, and uh, chances are I, I may be more inclined to, you know, because he is a, what would be considered a, a major donor, I guess. And I'm not saying that this happens all the time or, or whatever, but there are, you know, those extenuating circumstances. Plus, it's also how society views physicians versus nurses. And, right. and in North Carolina, there's what, six physicians, I think, who are in the legislature. Mm, I don't. I can't remember how many now, but we've yeah. got we've got nurses in the yeah. We have nurses now, too. So yeah. we've got four. Yeah. So you know, so that's you know that's is changing, yeah. but still, you know, the uh, sometimes they would tend to even when you have both physicians and nurses there, the people who may be in charge are going to, you know, they may say, okay, what does the nursing association think about this, and what does the medical society think about this, and you know, so they may you know, still favor what the medical society may say, even though it's not a good piece of of legislation. So it depends on a lot of times the working relationship that you're able to, you know, to to foster and uh, et cetera. But, and it also boils down to, yeah, who has uh, more, the the deeper pockets to, to make donations to those campaign funds. So discretionary income here is probably the difference is is Mm -hmm. what I'm hearing. Well, you know, to me, this issue is so very complicated. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we looked at a lot of this whenever I went back to school and we were working on our project to mm-hmm. start the campaign school, but we're going to have to work within our own house. Mm-hmm. Nurses need a culture shift within nursing itself to see themselves as viable candidates. Now, you know, we're going to have to address the elephant in the room. And the elephant is that 90% of nurses are female. Mm-hmm. And gender does play a role in that. Of course, in nurse anesthesia, we're 47% male. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think our lucky stars every day for that because we are not a feminized profession within CRNAs. And that's also why we do very well financially. Mm -hmm. So the more men that we can bring into nursing, the better off we'll be. So I think that will help change that. We know that women have to be asked seven times before they'll run for office. A man wakes up and looks in the mirror and goes, Hey, I think I can be president. So that's one of the things that we've got to address. Another thing I think is nurses are very good at advocating for others. And you took a drive by at this, Ernest, because you you talked about how nurses take care of everybody else, but yet they'll work short. Bethany Hallong, the first lieutenant governor, who's the nurse in the United States from Delaware, she says nurses deal with all kinds of things all the time. And when they come to a wall, they will go around it, over it or under it to get the job done. And so that's what that's what nurses do. And they're not used to advocating for themselves. Now, Jeremy and I talk a lot about millennials. 
Mm-hmm. I love millennials. And I think that they're going to change this mm-hmm. uh, because they have no fear. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's going to be one of the best things that has happened to the nursing profession because they won't tolerate things that we would have made to work. We would have used duct tape mm-hmm. and chewing gum and make it work. And True. they are like, uh, excuse no. me, this is not happening. True. <laughs> so I think I think this is changing. I think the future looks bright. Mm-hmm. And 2020, exactly as you said, Ernest, for all of the devastation, ironically, it was the year of the nurse and the midwife. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it truly was the year of the nurse mm-hmm. and the midwife going forward. So I think it's going to be great. But speaking of the future, why don't you talk a little bit about the future of nursing report and its recommendations, Ernest? Well, there's a lot of recommendations that came out of that report. Um, obviously, still continue to advocate for you know nurses to go back and, you know, get the RN to BSN if you know if possible, and then even higher degrees, um, more advocacy for the advanced practice nurse, you know, at all levels, nurses still being able to have full practice authority. It also addressed the elephant in the room as well, which is, uh, you know, racism within the nursing profession. And I'm proud to say that at ANA, we formed the commission to address racism in nursing with their three other principal nursing organizations, although we have invited all nursing organizations to be a part, but with the National Black Nurses Association, the National Association of Hispanic Nurses, and NSEMA, which is the National Coalition of Ethnic and Minority Nurses. And again, we are addressing <clears throat> this, uh, this issue. And one of the ways that we're doing it is uh, by looking at four different domains nursing education, clinical practice, advocacy, and research. You know, just like when, you know, I've heard it said that when a baby is born, they're not born prejudiced. You know, they're not born to be racist. It's a learned behavior. Same thing for nurses when you go to nursing school. You know, it's part of the, the, the it starts as part of the, uh, the, the education. So the whole idea is that by addressing it in these four domains, with leadership and administration as a, a thread through those as well, will begin to change the profession in general. You know, so it's going to take some time, but, you know, the the uh, reports start looking for that to start coming out. But that's part of that. The re- uh, future of nursing also goes back to, again, encouraging nurses to be more politically savvy and et cetera as well. All the things that we've been talking about so far this morning have been addressed by the uh, future of nursing report. It's a 500 and some odd page report. I'm uh, still in the process of reading it, but it does spell out a good pathway for where the nursing profession will go within the next 10 years. And I would say though, that the main emphasis is for nurses to become woke, if you will, even more, and to advocate for their, uh, you know, behalf of their profession and not just sit idly by and let people who are far removed from the profession, who have no idea what it is that we as nurses do, dictate how the profession is going to be run. So Ernest, did it address this nursing shortage that we keep hearing about and how how bad is this going to get? And I guess if you know this statistic, it would be interesting to me. If you don't say it, you know, I 
I have to look this up, Jeremy. But you know how <laughs> how many nurses are going to retire in the next ten years versus how many nurses are going to be put out in the next ten years? One of the last reports that I saw. You know, because right now the average age of the nurse at the bedside is about 56 years of age. Wow. You know, and a lot of them chose to retire over the last 14 to 16 months because of COVID. You know, right. they were in that high risk group and were told by their employer or whatever, you know, you might want to consider early retirement. The downside to that, too, is that we also did a survey two months ago and nurses who've been in the profession less than five years, 15 percent of them are saying that they're going to leave the profession because they feel underappreciated, not well paid and, you know, overworked uh, as well. The numbers, I, I think if you add all those before COVID came, we were already in the midst of a nursing shortage. We've always been in a, right. a nursing shortage, but now there's an estimated need of at least I believe close to about 6 million nurses that we're going to need uh, within the next five years. Part of that's being driven, too, by people of my generation, you know, the, I guess I'm mid-level baby boomer, but we're reaching retirement age as well. And, you know, every year, uh, every day in the United States, 10,000 Americans are turning 65, you know, every day for the next, uh, until 2033, I think, or 2035. And they're living longer and they're wiser and they're smarter. We know how to use computers and, you know, things of that sort. So think of how that's driving healthcare as well. Mm-hmm. So anyone listening to this specialize in geriatrics is what, <laughs> that's what I would always tell nursing students as well. There's a huge need because as healthcare transitions out of the hospital into the home, into the community and et cetera, there's going to be an explosive need for more nurses, uh, you know, in those areas as well. Now, when I talk with deans and directors of nursing programs, they are always saying they're happy that they have a waiting list. But the problem is, one, there's not enough faculty to accommodate the students that need that want to go into the profession. There's not enough space and there's not enough clinical space. You know, they are nursing programs are dictated to how many they can admit, what clinical areas and things like this based on, you know, the uh, State Board of Nursing and the National Council of of Nursing, which, you know, when they go to write their their NCLEX and et cetera. Mm -hmm. So, and of course, we've been petitioning Congress as well to fund more, uh, put aside more funds, Title VIII funding for nursing education. And this is not only just for basic nursing, but even for graduate nursing. So people who want to go back for an advanced degree or whatever, we still, you know, there's an increase need for that because obviously medical schools and PA programs still cannot turn out enough individuals to meet that need as well. So there's still a huge need for advanced practice nurses also. So this shortage is going to continue. And one of the ways to perhaps help um, alleviate that, not only getting the, the resources, but also increasing salaries that uh, nurses may, uh, you know, that they make. We need to, you know, have a competitive salary and not be included in room and board, you know, yeah. in the uh, acute care setting. We need to be rewarded for what we know and what we do. You know, if a physical therapist or an occupational therapist or a respiratory therapist can be, you know, can be able to charge individually for what they do, I think nursing should be able to examine that particular model as well. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online 
to crnafinancialplanning.com. Ernest, to your point, my oldest daughter is in nursing school at UNCG right now. Great school. Um, Great school, yeah. I thought you might think that. Um, my, my wife actually went to nursing school there as well. So, But you know, one of the things that her and I have been talking about over the last couple of years is how hard it is to get into that nursing school. One, mm-hmm. they only accept 100 students. Mm-hmm. It's tough. It's competitive. Mm-hmm. She, th- This child studies mm-hmm. all the time. She's got mm-hmm. three other roommates, and she said, Dad... They're always out. They get to go out. They get to have fun. And I'm here and I'm having to study. It is so hard Mm -hmm. in nursing school and so competitive. So, you know, in my mind, and again, I'm not saying you want to water it down or anything, but there needs to be an avenue for more people out there to do this. And I know that you're a big advocate for Mm -hmm. community colleges and bridges and so forth. And I heard you talk about that earlier, but, you know, just from a personal experience, you know, that's what is, is going on out there right now. Yeah. Well, one of the things that our foundation is doing is exploring new models of ways for uh, people to, to become nurses. You know, we actually just got a significant uh, grant from a, uh, an organization. I'm not going to be that uh, because it's still in still in the, the you don't orbs. want to promote it yet, but, right? Uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but that is one of the things that we are recognizing is you know what are some other ways that we can explore instead of the traditional way um, you know for people to you know who want to become a nurse to uh, you know to be able to to do that without compromising obviously the um, you know professional components and et cetera you know they will still. Obviously, still know need to know the basics and all this other right, stuff, but right. you know, w- what are some other ways that we can explore that? So yeah, well, it um, also makes you me have, think, to have me back to uh, to explain that a little bit more. Yeah, yeah. Well, it also makes me think about you know the underprivileged out there, folks that don't have the money, or like you grew up with your family, and I grew up, and Sharon grew up. You know, we all grew up in in families that didn't have a lot of money, and mm-hmm. you know these kids out there trying to go to nursing school, and it's it's a very difficult path. It probably precludes a lot of folks from going that way, just because maybe they're not able to hold down a job or and and do the the rigors of nursing school. So, just a lot to think about. And as I kind of lead into that, Ernest, you know, I think the last point that I want to covered today is the National Commission to Address Racism in Nursing. And I did do a little bit of, of reading on that and so forth. And I'd love to hear your take and uh, kind of expound upon that a little bit. Well, you know, as I mentioned, this is um, an initiative that I, I give credit to the American Nurses Association Board of Trustees, you know, as um, or Board of Directors, excuse me, as a result of um, the, uh, you know, the death of George Floyd and the, the other inequities that we saw as a result of COVID happening, it really did shine the light on, um, you know, what is happening in healthcare and how, you know, the BIPOC community is truly underserved. But we also recognize that within nursing itself, there's racism that occurs. And so, again, we put together the National Commission to address that. And as I mentioned, the the other organizations that are involved, and we also have uh, invited pretty much every nursing um, association that is out there to, you know, to be part of that. And I explained the, uh, the areas where we're, we're going to concentrate, but the whole idea is that eventually we're focusing this on ANA's uh, scope and standards of practice. 
so that it can be something that can be incorporated into regulatory agencies, if you will. So in other words, from the education perspective, when the NLN or AACN go into accredited a nursing program, they can say, we've adopted these, you know, these scope and practice standards from the National Commission. Show us how you are fitting that into your educational program. Mm-hmm. When they go into a, uh, when the Joint Commission goes into a clinical setting, you know, same thing. How are you incorporating these practice standards in your clinical policies and et cetera. Same thing with with advocacy and and research. With the whole idea being that from an educational perspective, it's going to change, you know, the questions on the NCLEX. It's going to change the, you know, because the the, the NCLEX sort of, uh, it it doesn't really, you know, the questions, they're generalized, I guess you could say. They, They really don't, you know, take into consideration, you know, how do you, you know, provide care for, you know, we think we may be providing culturally competent care, but we really are not. We're, we're missing the boat a little bit. And, and instead of just saying, asking the individual, you know, like, how might I address you? Or what do I need to do to, you know, to make you feel comfortable, you know, in your culture or whatever, when you're sick or, you know, things like this, we draw inferences, you know, quite a lot and not include the person in the decision-making. And we're wanting to be able to uh, include that person. From a clinical perspective, you've all have heard it said how nurses eat their young. And, uh, yep. you know, I would always tell students, you know, uh, especially the millennials, it's time to put a stop to that. Yep. You know, challenge that person. You know, ask them, what did I do to you, you know, to deserve this? And usually that bully will say, well, it was done to me. And it's like, well, is there any reason to continue to, you know, to carry that on? you know, flip the, you know, sort of flip the script on them a, a little bit to, uh, you know, to, to bring about an end to this. But we also have, one of the things we've been doing is in having listening sessions. And I wish you could hear the heartfelt emotions that nurses are talking about their experiences in dealing with racism. And some of it is subtle. Some of it is just out and out blatant, you know, racism, but, you know, like, um, uh, nursing uh, personnel who would come in, say their first day on the floor, and they'd go into you know, maybe the, the nursing lounge or whatever. And even though they have RN after their name, you know, they would be asked by a colleague, "Oh, are you with housekeeping? Or are you with um, uh, the, you know the dietary staff?" And they say, "No, I'm a new nurse." Oh, really? What school did you graduate from? You, you know, like okay, so why does the school that I graduated from matters? What matters is that I was able to pass the NCLEX because that's what determined that I am a nurse, not the fact that I went to this school or that school or, you know, whatever else. Or we have nursing instructors who, you know, with a PhD would be in a room with the student and the patient would be talking to the student instead of talking to the nursing instructor, you know, asking the the student to ask the, you know, the instructor, you know, things like that we need to address. And it is definitely going to change the profession. And as I will say that, as I told the commission at the very first meeting, one of the first things we need to do ourselves is to recognize our past. You know, ANA does not have a a very good track record either in dealing with uh, racism in the past. There was a time when ANA itself was segregated, would not allow, you know, black nurses could be members, but you couldn't be uh, hold office. Uh, You know, that's the reason MBNA was formed. And we are looking at a way to address that and issue an apology that is uh, is in the works because to put something out there like this and uh, for people to say, well, you expect us to to do this, but look at 
look at what you've done, look at your, your history, uh, you know, we need to correct that as well. So, uh, so I'm really excited about some of the works that we're going to be doing. I would encourage your audience to stay tuned. We are hoping to have an initial summit, um, I think in October or November, about the work that we are doing. We have devised an official definition you know, specific to racism in uh, nursing. There will be some uh, articles coming out as well. So perhaps uh, maybe uh, I can be invited back and we can discuss that or with my other co-chairs of the uh, commission as well. I I think it's a very important topic that we need to address in all levels of of nursing in in, uh, healthcare. So, you know, again, I apologize for the very lengthy answers, but uh, we will definitely we'll take you up on that. And just we'll definitely as, have, back. <laughs> uh, have, have, you know, the AANA wouldn't let men into the organization mm-hmm. until 1950. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. my goodness. Oh, my goodness. But I think that's a fabulous idea. And you just let us know. We'd love to have you back. And we appreciate you joining us today. And we do something called the lightning round Mm -hmm. so that people can kind of get an understanding of the people that we're interviewing on a whole different level. So I'm going to take the first question here. So, Ernest, when you feel fear, what do you do first? Take a deep breath. Ah, that's ah, good. Good one. Good. That sounds like you, Jeremy. Yeah. <laughs> it, does. it does. I do the box breathing. You, you, you heard of that? <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I do. But all right, Ernest, if you could have dinner with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Oh, wow. If it's someone who's, uh, who's deceased, Abraham Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's someone who is alive, Barack Obama. Ah, oh, okay. Good. good. Good answer. So what's your superpower, Ernest? <laughs> I have a superpower. <laughs> of course you do. I'm a nurse. How's that? Oh, that's a good one. Oh, good one. That's right. perfect. Great. All right. Ernest, what are you grateful for right now? Oh, I am grateful for everyone in my life. Uh, grateful for the position that I am in right now to hopefully lead the profession of nursing to the next goal that, uh, you know, it's, it's time for transformation, I guess you could say, in, in healthcare. And I'm grateful to be in this position at this particular time as a, a part of that change. And what habit do you have that you wish you could eliminate? Sweet. <laughs> <laughs> We've got something in common. I love to bake sweets. That's, that's, the, that's the problem, oh, too. Okay. All right. So you do it yourself. See, I, I would be in trouble if I did that, Ernest. So. <laughs> well, Ernest, as, as Sharon said, we really want to thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for all your giving back to not only the healthcare community, but just the community in general. You know, I, again, I, I read about you and just impressed with what you've been able to accomplish, uh, humbling beginnings, um, mm-hmm. and you're doing great work out there. So we, we really want to thank you, and, and hopefully our listeners will, will get to know Ernest and more about the ANA, and hopefully it'll bring you know, a lot of our listeners from the CRNA community in and understand that nurses do need to support each other in all endeavors. Well, thank you very much. And if any of your listeners want to contribute to the uh, 1968 Green Cougar uh, Trust Fund, (laughs) have them them hit me up. (laughs) I just want to ride once you get it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, you better keep Pierce away from it too, Sharon. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, true that. (laughs) 
All right. Well, I think that's a wrap, Sharon. I think so, Jeremy. Well, we want to we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show, uh, the single best way to help the show grow is to what, Sharon? Like us, subscribe to us, leave us a review, tell all your friends, put it on social media. Did I miss anything? I think you did well. You know, we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the U.S., Sharon, and our goal is to be in the... Top 10. Top 10 on our way to number one, right? Absolutely. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks, Sharon. And until next time. It's a wrap. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. 
Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.